Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. I remember reading a story several years ago, and I didn't include the name, so I don't know for certain that it's a true story. But the story uh, that I read covered a, a banquet that was held in Massachusetts for, if I remember right, I think it was the governor of Massachusetts at the time. And so there's a banquet going on with a big dinner and, and speeches and things like that. And at one point during the dinner, the, the governor decides that he would like a little bit more butter to go with his roll. And so as the waitress came by his table, he, he got her attention and he said, excuse me, miss. He said, can I have some more butter to go with my roll, please? And she said, no, I'm sorry, you can't. And I don't know if she's joking with him or what the deal was, but she said, no. He was a little taken back by that and the conversation continued. And finally he says to her, he says, well, do you, do you know who I am? Pulling a little rank here. And she says, no, I don't know who you are. And he says, well, I'm the governor of Massachusetts. And much to his surprise, she said, well, do you know who I am? And caught a little off guard, he said, no, I don't know who you are. And she said, well, I'm the waitress in charge of the butter. And so <laughs> there was a little, a little uh, tug of war here, a little discrepancy on who had the higher authority at this point, who was going to get their way. Well, as we come into Hebrews chapter 2, that's exactly what we're dealing with. It's pointing out that Jesus is the higher authority. It's been comparing him from the beginning of chapter 1 to prophets and to angels. Saying, look, in various times and various ways, God spoke to our fathers in the past through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken by his son, who obviously outtrumps everybody. Well, it's because of that that then it comes into chapter 2. And he says, therefore, based on all of that, we must... It's an emphatic word. Must pay close attention. That, that, that word that he uses in that phrase there about paying close attention is often used in reference to an anchor, like a ship's anchor. But basically what he's saying is you really need to anchor your life into the Word of God. Now specifically what he's talking about at this point, he's not really debating the Old Testament because he's writing to Jewish people that had always accepted the, the, the Old Testament as the Word of God. They knew that that was from God. But what he's referring specifically to is this New Testament that is proclaiming Jesus Christ to be the Son of God. So it's the, the teaching of the apostles. And so he's really focusing primarily on the, on the message of the New Testament and even within that, specifically to their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. But you know what? You cannot be faithful to Jesus Christ apart from being faithful to His Word. And that's what he's doing. Is he's writing to these Jewish people. They've, they've received Jesus as their Messiah. But because of that, a lot of hardship has come into their lives. They've been publicly humiliated. Some of them have been imprisoned. Some of their properties have been confiscated. Their possessions have been taken away. And so they're going through a lot of hardship to follow Jesus Christ, to trust in Jesus Christ, and to follow the teaching of the apostles has gotten them into a lot of trouble. And so he's writing to them and saying, look, even though this is causing you a lot of hardship and struggle in your life, and because of that you're tempted to go back to your old life, he's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. You can't do that. You need to remain faithful 
to Jesus Christ. And in this warning passage, which is the first one of five in the book of Hebrews, he's directing them that in order to do that, they need to remain faithful to God's word. And he's saying, if look, if the message sent by angels was reliable, that's what they considered the Old Testament to be kind of mediated by angels. He says, if that was reliable, how much more this testimony from the Son of God? And so his encouragement is, look, you need to anchor into God's word. You need to anchor your life, your heart, your, you need to really take hold of, anchor yourself into God's Word. Now, it's not the only time that God is going to use this kind of terminology. When we get to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19, he would say this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And so what that's referring to, and I love this picture, this analogy, because he's saying and he's talking about the temple or the tabernacle, and inside the, the tabernacle is the holy place. the the most holy place where only the high priest can go to offer the sacrifice once a year. And he's saying, look, if you're trusting in Christ, the anchor to your soul is like if you picture this idea of throwing an anchor into the most holy place, because it says it goes behind the curtain, and that was the door to the holy place. He says if you throw that anchor into there and kind of hook it on the mercy seat of God, that's where your anchor is. If you're trusting in Jesus, the anchor of your soul is actually fastened to the throne of God. I just love that. How secure are you if your anchor is fastened around the leg of the throne of God itself? But let's get back to chapter 2. In chapter 2, he uses that kind of terminology to say that, you know what, we need to pay close attention. We need to be anchored into the Word of God in order to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. Well, as we look through this passage, we're going to see three reasons that he gives us for anchoring ourselves into the Word of God. The first reason that he gives us is just because it is the Word of God. In verse 3, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. This message, this New Testament that we have, he says it was itself first declared to us by the Lord. And so this, this is the Word of God. That is enhanced or substantiated by everything that he said in chapter 1. If we look at the word therefore at the very beginning of chapter 2, remember what you always do with the word therefore. Every time you see the word therefore, it means you need to back up and look at what came right before it to see what it's there for. That's, that's the purpose of that word. It's saying based on everything that we said here, now this is what should follow. And so as we look at that, what did we see in chapter 1? Well, if we go back to chapter 1, verse, the first four verses, we saw that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And He's the radiance of God's glory. We saw that He demonstrated His deity by the fact that He was involved in creating the world. And He's involved in sustaining the world. And He's involved in providing salvation for the world. And so the, the whole of Hebrews chapter 1, and specifically in the first four verses, is pointing out that Jesus is the Son of God. That He is God the Son. He is God come in the flesh. And so, whatever words begins to be declared by Him is, in and of its very nature, the Word of God. But He doesn't stop there. He's based on that, but He doesn't stop there. How else do we know this to be the Word of God? He gives us proof. He gives us proof that it's God's Word. How do we know that the New Testament is the Word of God? God proves it for us. Because as we look down through the passage, we see a couple different things that God gives us to substantiate it. First of all, we've already mentioned it started out to be spoken by the Lord. 
But secondly, this is a group of people that didn't hear it come from the lips of the Lord. And we know that from this passage right here. Because it says, but then it was confirmed to us by those that heard him. And so these people didn't hear it straight from Jesus, but they heard it from the people that heard it straight from Jesus. And so in other words, they're following the teaching of the apostles. It's the same thing that we're doing even today. We're pulling out the writings of the apostles and we're learning about what the apostles said that Jesus taught us. But notice, it's by eyewitness accounts. And it was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. So they had firsthand eyewitness accounts of the things that they were hearing. That's the same thing that we have. As we open up our New Testaments today, we find that our New Testaments are written by the apostles. Those are people that walked with Christ, listened to Christ, saw the miracles of Christ. Or they're written by people that were along with the apostles, that were substantiated by an apostle. When Peter was writing his second epistle in chapter 1, he would say, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. See what he's saying? He's saying these aren't fanciful stories that we've been duped into believing. We were there. We were eyewitnesses. We saw these things. And then he gives an example. He says, For when we received honor, or when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne by him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Remember, that's when Jesus went up on the mountain and was transfigured before three of the apostles Peter, James, and John. Now Peter says, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. Peter says, look, I'm not telling you things that I heard or that I've been duped into believing. I was there. In John's epistle, 1 John, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he says, that which was from the beginning, and then notice how much he repeats this, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you that the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So John repeats it several times in those few verses that, look, we saw this, we heard this, we were there, we touched this. In case you didn't catch it the first time, we saw this, we heard this. And then right before I go on to the next thing, by the way, we were there, we heard this. You know, he, he repeats it like three times through that passage. And so we have it confirmed to us through eyewitness accounts of people that were actually there. And then lastly, it says that God bore witness to it. He confirmed it through the miracles that the apostles were able to do. Why did people believe the testimony of the apostles? Well, one, because they were eyewitnesses and they were there. But two, is because something amazing was going on. The miracles that they were able to perform, the healings that took place. Peter and John would, stand, would go to the temple to pray and there's a lame person begging at the gate and they would, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk and the man would go walking and leaping and praising God all around the temple and it got everybody's attention and they're like, what's going on here? And Peter says, look, it's not my power that did this. It's in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who was, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Through Him, this man stands here whole. And so because of that miracle, then people would say, boy, God, they are from God because look at what God's doing through them. It is a time in Peter's ministry when he could walk down the road and his shadow touching people would heal them. Why were all the miracles there? It was because God was there bearing witness along with the apostles to look, this is true. These are my apostles. They're, they're starting my church. They're building my work. This is the truth. It's the same reason that we saw in Jesus. 
In the Gospel of John, when Jesus is, is doing all these miracles, John always calls them signs. Because the signs point to who Christ is. At one time, the, the, the leaders would come up to Jesus and they would ask Him, Are you the Son of God? And Jesus would tell them, If I tell you, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. It doesn't mean that it, the facts aren't true. But what it meant was, in the Jewish court of law, in order for something to be considered a fact, it had to be attested to by two witnesses. So Jesus said, look, if I just testify about myself, you don't have to accept it as true. But, he says, I've got more than that. I've got testimony of John the Baptist. He testified about me that these things were true. And I have the testimony of God himself in the works that he's given me to do. And so Jesus pointed out that the miracles that he performed were proof that he was the Son of God. Because God was, that was God's way of demonstrating that Jesus was His Son. Well, it's the same thing in the ministry of the apostles. As they're giving us the foundation of the church and they're giving to us the Word of God, God had them doing all these healings and these miraculous things because that substantiated that what they were doing was from God as He laid the foundation of the church. And so God was testifying. You know, every once in a while, somebody says, oh, well, why do you believe the Bible is just a book written by men? And I think, you know what? The Bible's a book written by man if man can raise the dead. If that's a natural thing for man to do, then this is just a man's book. If a man can heal leprosy by just a spoken word or walk by and have a shadow touch somebody and they be healed, if he can cause blind people to see and lame people to walk, if he can, if he can do all these things just naturally in and of his own ability by laying hands on them or, or just telling them to get up and walk, then yes, this is just a human book. But this is not a human book. And that's exactly what God was pointing out by all of the miracles. That this is God's Word. Well, if it's God's Word, then we ought to anchor our life into that Word. The next kind of reason that he gives us is the reliability of God's Word. He says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect it? The word given by angels was shown to be reliable. Now, the, the word given to angels, if you look at like Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, it refers to the Old Testament as that, as being mediated by angels. And so he says, look, if this word that was mediated by angels was reliable, and it was. Now, he's not talking about a lot of times when we talk about the reliability of the Bible, we look back and say, does the Bible still say the same thing today that it says said 2,000 years ago when it was written? And even as we learn in our Sunday school class and watching a video this morning, it absolutely does. We have, we have ancient manuscripts that our Bibles have been copied from that go way back to within 80 years of the writing of the New Testament. We've got over 25,000 different manuscripts out there. And when we compare what the Bible says today compared to what it says in those most ancient copies, it still says the same thing. It's still reliable. But that's not what it's talking about here in this passage. In this passage, is basically looking back at the Old Testament and saying, look, God gave us His Word through Moses and David and Elijah and all those guys. Was that Word reliable? Was it really the record of what God expected from us as a people? Absolutely it was. And he's saying, how much more the word that we've given that came from his son? If, if that which was mediated by angels, and all of chapter 1 is showing that Christ is superior to the angels. To which of the angels did he ever say, you're my son, today have I begotten you? To the which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He's been showing that Jesus Christ as the son of God is far superior to the angels. He says, look, if the message that was given through angels is reliable, how much more reliable is the message that was given through his son? You know what? If you live a life faithful to the Word of God, it might get you into some trouble. I would say not as much trouble as these people were going through. It's probably not going to get your property taken from you. It's probably not going to have you land in jail. 
at least at this point in our history, maybe in the future, who knows. But it might get you into some trouble. You might have some relationships that begin weakened. Friends that no longer want to hang around you quite as much because you're taking this faith thing a little too seriously. Or it might, it might cost you some financial gains. It might cost you a promotion because you don't fit in quite as much as, as uh, somebody else does that's uh, living in the world that, that might within the company, within you work, which you work or something. Teenagers and, and kids in, in uh, school and high school, you might cost you some points in your reputation with some other people, with some of your friends and, and people that you hang around. It might uh, get you some negative peer pressure along the way. It might get you made fun of or ridiculed a little bit here and there, but that's probably, that's probably about the end of it. But the point is, we've got a message that came from the Son of God Himself. It's confirmed to us by eyewitnesses, testified by God Himself through the working of miracles. This is the reliable record of what God expects from us as His people and what He has for us for the future. And because of that, He also points out our responsibility toward God's Word. He says... Look at that. Look at what happened in the Old Testament. That God gave those people through the prophets and through the angels. Every transgression was punished. When the children of Israel turned their back on God, God gave them up to their enemies. When they rebelled against God, God takes the children of Israel. Moses leads them up to the promised land, about ready to go into the promised land. And they decide not to trust God. No, we'll get beat in there. Those guys are too big for us. We can't do this. And so they decide to stay put. And so you know what God says? All right, the judgment for that is you're staying out here your whole life. I'll lead your kids in later, but you're going to die in the wilderness, out of the promised land. There's a cost for disobeying God's Word. There is judgment for turning your back on God by violating His commands and going against His Word. We have this Word of God because it is exactly that. Because it is the Word of God, we ought to anchor our life into it. We ought to pay closer attention. We must anchor our life into this Word of God. Well, not only do we have the reasons just because it is the Word of God, but there's another reason that's found within the passage, and that's because we tend to drift. We, we, we tend to drift away. And he uses some of that same language, some kind of a seaman's language here. Notice as we go back up into verse 1, he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. That's what, that's what we're prone to do. If we're not in God's Word, if we're not learning from God's Word, we're... We tend to drift away. When I was a kid, we did a lot of camping and stuff. Our family did, and we spent a lot of time out on boats, and I still spend a lot of time on boats. I love it. I love being out on the water, out on the lakes. When I was a kid growing up, uh, I learned some things about our boat. I had different responsibilities. I, I remember uh, one time when I was just learning, I was fairly young, and we were going from one spot on the lake over to this other spot. I think we are out on an island or something, and we came in and went over to this resort area and pulled up onto the beach, and my dad told me, Greg, tie up the boat. Uh, I jumped out, grabbed the rope of the boat, pulled it up into the sand and tied her up. And we went up to, to the store. And, the, and then we turned around and came back. And much to my dismay, I looked out and I panicked because there's the boat drifting. And my dad sees that boat. And I got a lesson in knot tying that day that I never forgot. I still know how to make that knot to hold that boat where it should have been held at that time. It was a little bit, he'd taught me before, but it didn't stick. This time it stuck. And uh, because I walked down there and I watched that drifting out. That's what boats do. They drift. Uh, other boats go by, waves, breezes pick up, all kinds of things can, can contribute to that. But boats drift. That word was often used of a ship coming in to dock and missing it. He's coming in, trying to make his way into port, into the dock, and he just misses it and he drifts on by. 
Well, you know what? It's, it's one thing if, it's, if you're just talking about docking a ship or a boat. It's something completely different if we're talking about our lives. And the point is simply this. If we don't anchor our life into the Word of God, then we will miss it. We will miss the mark. We will get to the end of our life and have the regret of having, having, having missed what we were supposed to be a part of. Having lived our life in a way other than how we're supposed to be living it. Having uh, our reception into heaven being different than what it very well might have been. In fact, the point that he's going to make to them is maybe not have a reception into heaven at all. He's telling these people, look, you can't turn your back on this. He's telling us the same thing. If we want to make the mark, if we want to not drift in our life, he's given us something to anchor into here. He's given us something solid that will hold you in the storms. It will hold you when the waves kick up and the winds blow. It'll, it's something to anchor into. If we don't, we will drift. Then as we look at lastly, it says, because it's the only way. Because as we come into verse 3, it says, how shall we escape? Now, remember if we... Finishing verse 2, he's just compared it. If there was punishment and judgment for missing the mark, the punishment and judgment for turning your back on the Word of God in the Old Testament that was delivered by prophets and angels, uh, how much more if we have a message from the very Son of God and we turn our back on that, that's where we find ourselves. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now that question, think about that. How shall... How shall we escape? You see, the point is, we do have an escape. We do have an escape from the judgment of God. We do have an escape from the wrath of God. We have an, we have an escape from, a, from an eternity paying for our sins. We have an escape. We have, a way, we have a way into heaven. We have this eternal life through Jesus Christ. There is a way. We do have this way of escape. But if we ignore that way of escape, what other way of escape is there? There isn't one. That's, that's it. You see, these people were probably thinking, well, we're going to go back to the temple, offer those sacrifices. It's no longer there. That's not the way of escape anymore. Those just pointed to the real one that would be offered by Christ, which would be permanent. And so those were just a picture of the one that was coming. And so now that that's been fulfilled, those aren't, that isn't a way of escape anymore. The only way of escape is through Jesus Christ. The Bible points this out over and over and over. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Over and over and over, the Bible makes the same statement. There is one way of escape. It's through Jesus Christ. And that's it. That's the only way. But you know what, people? We always gravitate toward these foolish ideas that all religions are like runways into the same heaven. It's not true. It's impossible that that is true when you think about it. It's impossible. Christianity says there is only one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. Islam says the only way is, and they have their statement of faith, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. So is the path there through Jesus Christ? Christianity says it's only through him. Islam's a little bit different. Muhammad isn't a savior, he's a prophet, but, but it's through Allah. Is it Allah or Jehovah? They say, ah, it's just different names for the same God. No, it's not. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved than the name Christ Jesus. When you look in the Old Testament, there's other gods, and the Bible addressed that. And the Bible never says, Old Testament or New, that's me too. I'm just going by a different name over there. You know what it does say? You shall have no other God before me. One of the Ten Commandments. The worship of another God that's not the God is idolatry. 
For when you have two different religions that both say we're the only way, it is impossible for both of those to be true, right? So the old law of non-contradiction for rational thinking people, if two things contradict, they can both be wrong or one can be right and the other one wrong, but they cannot both be right. It's impossible. And so when you think about that, Christianity ruled out all this idea that all these religions are just different runways into the same airport. They all lead to heaven. They all lead to God just by a different name. That is impossible. Logically impossible. In fact, you don't even have to take Christianity and Islam and compare them. You can take Christianity and all the other faiths in the world. Because, Christi because Christianity says Jesus is the only way, even a religion that says there are many ways is a contradiction with Christianity, with what Jesus taught. And so this is the only way of escape. It's not the, the way of escape is not religion. The way of escape is Jesus Christ. That's the way. And it's proclaimed to us in his word that he's given to us that we need to anchor our lives into. Not only that, but let's, let's consider this. Notice what it takes to miss it. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect? If we neglect. Here's the, here's the, saddest, the saddest part of this verse to me, of this passage. Is it talks about what it takes to miss the way, to miss the escape, to miss the salvation that's provided for us in Jesus Christ. What does it take to miss out on heaven? Nothing. You know what you have to do to miss heaven? Nothing. You don't have to do anything. You're already born missing it. You're already born with a sin, sinful nature. You're already born on the, on the road to the wrong place. Something has to happen to get you into heaven, and that's what Jesus Christ died on the cross for. Because notice what it says here. How should we escape? He doesn't say, how should we escape if we're against God? How should we escape if we're standing against Jesus Christ, if we're fighting against Christianity? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, how do we escape if we neglect? It's the same word that Jesus used in one of his parables, talking about everybody being invited to a party, and people just kind of ignored it. They just neglected it. Sadly, I would say that this is why this part of the passage is sad to me, is because I would say probably most of the people in the world, I would say most of the people in our society... This is, this is where we find them. They're not against God. They're not like that Dawkins guy out there writing, writing books like The God Delusion, trying to talk people out of believing in God. They're not people that are, that are screaming atheists, standing up saying, there is no God, and you know you Christians ought to stay in the buildings and that kind of stuff. They're, they're not people that are set in their teeth against God. They, in fact, I'd say the average person in polls show that in our country, most people think, well, there's God. But at the same time, when you look at what people actually have of God in their lives... It doesn't really show a belief in God. I mean, they believe that He exists, but they're not really following. They're not learning from His Word. They're not going out and worshiping. They're not fellowshipping with other believers. There doesn't seem to be a relationship with Jesus Christ there. So I would say this, that in, in society, probably most of the people, like I said, are not adamantly against God. They're just neglecting Him. They just don't have anything to do with Him. They just, oh, it might be alright for you, but I'm just not really into that. And that's all it takes. The author's writing to these people and he's saying, look, you don't have to fight against God to miss the way of escape. you just got to ignore Him. you just got to turn your back on Him. you just got to neglect it. That's all it takes. In order for us to be saved, in order for us to have that escape, we have to put our faith in Christ. We have to repent of our sins and turn to Him. If we don't do that, if we just neglect that salvation that is offered for us, we don't get a go. It is... The only way. So as he's writing to these people, let's stop worrying about these people at this point in the sermon. Let's worry about us. As he's writing to us, 
recognizes that there's temptations within our lives to, that would cause us to maybe walk away from God. Maybe go back to our old style of living. Maybe follow a more worldly path than what God has laid out for us. He's saying, look, you can't, if you're a genuine believer, you can't turn your back on this. You'd be foolish to turn your back on this. This is the only way of escape. The only way of escape of the judgment of God. This is the Word of God that He gave to us through His Son, confirmed to us with eyewitnesses, and testified Himself through the use of miracles to show us that it is His Word. If we turn our back on this, if we just neglect it in our lives, we're going to drift. And we're going to walk away. And in walking away, we turn our back on the only way of escape that God has provided for us. He's provided the way of His Son, Jesus Christ.